Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. One, Harbinger. The old man lay on the ground like a stringless marionette, just outside of the entrance to the Starland Food Universe grocery store. An icy wind soughed and wheezed with a metallic chill. The California sun was a cold sun today, socked beneath a thick gauze of drenched clouds. Thin scarves of misty rain danced mindlessly nearby. The man coughed, a gagged, gargling hack, and then tightened his tattered and torn trench coat, attempting to keep what little warmth his blue-gray body still generated from escaping into the unforgiving temperate abyss of cement beneath him. His mind was shattered. But even so, he was still dimly aware of what he was looking for. It took all of his concentration to quell the riot, but sometimes he could grasp the outline of it, of the idea that had brought him here in the first place. He'd been here for months, begging, dozing, begging again. For long stretches of days and weeks, he would forget entirely why he had come here. And what he finally remembered, it would seem like a fragment of a dream, a wisp of a wisp of a scrap. But what he was looking for was here. He knew it was. And if he waited long enough, well, it would come to him. Max Quick and Ian Keating exited the food universe in a rush, arms loaded with groceries. Max was throwing a party for Starland High seniors that evening at his... Well, he hated the word mansion, but that's exactly what it was. He and Ian had only just discovered that they were nearly out of food. Ian's fault, he'd bunched it all. And thus, the emergency food run had been called for. They were both 17, or several thousand years old in 17, depending on one's inclination and Max and Ian were very nearly the same height. Yet it was very easy to tell them apart. Max was lean-muscled and wore his brown hair long. It hung in a tangle down to his shoulders, unkempt and uncombed. Whereas Ian was rockstar scrawny, bony and pale, and his jet-black hair jutted spiked like a punk porcupine around his very English head. All right, we've got four hours, Max said to Ian. You're going to cook all this stuff up, right? Are you bloody out of your mind? Nobody English can cook. Max rolled his eyes. So I have to do it? You eat up all the food, but I'm the one who has to cook to make up for it? I have to go pick up Sasha. Oh, that's right, Max said. And you'll have traffic. You're cutting it close, dude. Are you even going to be back in time? Well, Sasha's at her grandma's. It's a half hour closer. But I have to leave right... Ian stopped speaking abruptly. He just barely managed to keep from stepping on the gnarled, rag-wrapped hand of the old man who snatched it away protectively with a snarl. Oh, jeez, I'm sorry, Ian said. I didn't see you there. The old man opened his mouth as if to retort, a stinging string of sarcasm, perhaps, but his eyes suddenly shifted to Max and flew wide in astonishment or surprise. The old man's mouth, a graveyard of crooked teeth, 
chewed words, but no sound escaped them save a protracted wheeze of delight or fear. A dream time, the old man gasped finally. A dream time is coming again! The very word dream time shot down through Max's spine in liquid energy, rooting him to the cement like a circuit had just been completed. This had been the very word Enki, Mr. E, had used to describe the implicit underlying order of the universe. Who was this old man, and what did he know of the dream time? He looked like a homeless beggar. There! The old man pointed into the sky with a skeletal finger. Max and Ian turned instinctively. There was nothing but roiling clouds, pregnant with wind and heavy rain, and on the edge of unleashing both. There! You see? I don't see anything, Max replied. That is because you are looking! You are not seeing! The old man hissed with annoyance. Again, both Max and Ian stared speechless at the old man. This was another phrase Mr. E had used, almost word for word. Max turned again to look at the sky, and immediately a splotch of black ink came out of the clouds and angled murderously for Max, Ian, and the old man. It didn't take more than a second for Max to realize it was three crows. Those are not crows, Enki's voice said in his mind. Archons? Here in Starland? But then the old man startled them both. He snapped suddenly to his feet with surprising agility. Just a moment ago he had seemed decrepit and arthritic, but now he sprung past them, limbs flailing and flying, sprinting with the youthful speed of a panther. He was halfway across the parking lot before Max and Ian even realized what was happening. The crows responded. With precision, with clear intent, they increased the speed of their descent, angling low and tight, a small black flying wedge in the sky. There was no mistake about it. They were attacking. The old man looked back wildly over his shoulder, sneering and spitting as the small murder strained to close the gap in the air. He waved his arms frantically over his head as if the tiny beasts were pecking him already. "'What do we do?' Ian asked. Max shook his head. He had no idea how to help this man. They could only watch in astonishment as the crows ripped through the sky with devilish speed. Then, with a violent wrench, the homeless old man tore a green dumpster away from the cement brick wall across the parking lot, shoving it to one side in a shuddering roll. Uh-oh. Max knew what that meant. He knew what that dumpster was hiding. The old man paused for a moment, cackling like a madman, taunting the crows. He grinned fiercely, his crooked teeth hanging from diseased gums like chips of broken porcelain, and then he hacked out a loud laugh of something like triumph from his tar-ridden lungs. And then the old man vanished. Surprised at his sudden disappearance, the murders strained to break off their dive. But their speed was too great. They had committed to this suicide run. In a panic, they squawked and howled as they leaned back and flapped their wings madly, trying to veer off course. Their tiny black muscles quivered in strain, but it was not enough. With a heart-stopping, fleshy smack, the crows bounced on the blacktop. And even though he knew they were archons, Max winced. People in the parking lot gave a collective startled jump. A crazy homeless old man hadn't caught their attention in the slightest. But three crows madly dive-bombing pavement? That was shocking. It was also profoundly disturbing. Something in the natural order was deeply amiss. Oh, a middle-aged man said near Max. I've never seen birds do something like that before. 
spells doom for the planet, you know, a younger man said. Birds have an internal compass, you know, like in their heads. Something must be wrong with the North Pole. But Max and Ian just looked at each other in shock. They knew exactly where that homeless old man had gone. The Pyramid of the Arches. There was an arch, a portal through space and time, located directly behind that dumpster. And somehow, that old man had known about it. Shaken, Max and Ian arrived back at Max's house. Domitian was waiting for them, scrambling with the hired DJ to get the PA system up and running in the spacious backyard. Ah, there you are, Domitian called out to them. You took forever. We've got lots... But there he stopped, seeing the pale look on Max's face. Dom, we need to talk. Max cut him off, eyeing the DJ. Right now, in private. Domitian nodded briskly. By now, he knew that look in Max's eyes. Ah, uh, of course. Let's go inside. During the long millennia, Mr. E had monitored the human world at large. Of course, he could not physically leave his etheric realm, the Isle of the Dreamtime, but he had other ways to communicate with these clever humans. In the old days, he'd relied on books, but now he had television, computers, phones, and modems. He used these wondrous tools, always searching for worthwhile individuals to be his eyes and ears, as well as his arms and legs, in the everyday affairs of mankind. He selected singularly clever and principled people, individuals who knew the system, knew how to get things done. He would start a dialogue with them, one that might last for years, quietly probing, questioning, watching. And after many, many tests, in which a candidate was given numerous opportunities to betray his trust, Mr. E would one day reveal himself. He would offer these people a job, one that came with immense wealth and other perks. And in some rare cases, Mr. E even trusted these people with his deepest and most ancient of secrets. Mr. E had connected Max with the very best of this invisible army. Domitian Crux, an older man of 76, had taken on legal guardianship of Max after the pocket. In the eyes of the government, Max was still a minor, and minors legally needed a parent. In addition to serving in the Marines for many years, Domitian had been a lawyer and a fund manager in his previous life, and thus also served as steward of Max's fortune, although he strictly obeyed the wishes of his young charge in all money and legal matters. Domitian had been fully briefed on the events of the pocket and Max's unique heritage and situation. He jealously guarded these secrets, and Max knew that the man would not hesitate to sacrifice his life to protect them. Mr. E knew how to pick his people well. And so, with the help of Domitian, Max had first lavishly improved the Starland home for boys. He'd completely gutted and remodeled it, added an Olympic swimming pool, several basketball courts, and a track and football field, and video games, and two widescreen HDTVs, wireless internet and laptops for all. The place was hardly recognizable, and this was intentional. Max had wanted to scrub every last trace of Mr. Blister from the place. Any floorboard, ceiling tile, or paneling that had been there under Blister's reign was ripped out, replaced. No, the misery that man had caused had seeped into the very walls. Screams from countless hammer times echoed in the hallways and offices of the children's gulag it had once been. It all had to go. Max had also given each of the residents of the Starland Home for Boys a trust fund, enough to pay for college and make a down payment on a home. 
Max had also purchased a house for Casey and her mom. He'd gotten them out of their cramped apartment. Instead, they now lived in a large country home on the outskirts of Starland. Also, Casey's mom, Sabine, didn't have to work at the bank anymore, and for that alone, she was extremely grateful to Max. She had her freedom, something she had thought would be impossible to attain in her lifetime. Max had tried to do the same for Sasha, to give her and her parents some kind of gift, but they were wary of Max. From their point of view, a strange rich boy they didn't know was suddenly trying to do very large favors for their pretty daughter and her family. It's a bit fishy from where they sat. Sasha tried to explain it was all on the up and up, but her father simply wouldn't have it. But all in all, the time directly following the pocket had been one of the happiest of Max's life. The years in this magical time had rolled by slowly, lazily. Twelve became thirteen, then fourteen. And that's when something rather strange happened to the hitherto very strange little boy. He started to grow up. Inexplicably, Max began aging like a normal young human male. His voice deepened, his shoulders broadened. More muscle appeared on his torso. He grew taller, leaner. Baby fat burned off him. He found he needed to shave. At first, Max actually wondered whether something might be wrong with him. There was no one to tell him that he had hit Nuberian adolescence at last. After thousands of years, it had come suddenly. His long childhood was over. Humans and Nuberians shared a genetic heritage, and thankfully, developmental adolescence was one of those things both races held in common. When a Nuberian began to mature, he did so at the same rate as humans. And the timing couldn't have been better. Max had secretly dreaded that Ian, Casey, and Sasha would grow up around him, leaving him a child in their midst. Now that was a horrible thought. He wondered sometimes whether this had happened to him before. Friends of his growing old around him, jealous of his agelessness, while he remained behind and alone. It had happened with Petunia. Max was sure of at least that much. She seemed to have known him only when she was young. They were childhood friends, but nothing more. Evidently, he had lost touch with Petunia as she had grown up. That baffled him at first. Why hadn't he contacted her sooner? Why hadn't he remained friends with her throughout her entire life? But now, he knew why. From the moment he'd first pictured himself as a child around a grown-up Ian, Casey, and Sasha, he was sure. He'd left Petunia behind, one day slinking off into the world before she could grow up on him. Max had already been planning on leaving Casey, Ian, and Sasha in a few years, disappearing once more into the world as the eternal boy with Domitian at his side, when miraculously, with tears in his eyes as he realized it, he found that he would not have to after all. Instead, Max went to Starland High with Casey and Ian. He played football. He had discovered that when wearing the Amphalus bracelet that Mr. E had given them, he could sometimes whoosh, just like they had all been able to do in the pocket. Part of his mind had been permanently opened by that experience. Sometimes he would wear it during football games, just to get a little extra speed going. He'd also discovered that he could influence others when wearing it, make himself unnoticeable, for example, just by thinking hard about it. Ian had tried to do similar things with his bracelet, but without much luck. But Max couldn't always control it. There had to be some kind of urgency, some kind of emotional trigger that focused him. And he could only do it when wearing the bracelet. Ian started a rock band that did bad covers of Planet Furious songs. Casey did track and chorus and took voice lessons. 
Sasha, who lived an hour north of all of them in Gilmanton, went to Central Mountain High. She did cheerleading in the fall and track in the spring. All in all, they passed the five years in a fairly normal way, with no further trouble from the inhabitants of a certain strange planet orbiting at the fringes of the solar system. When Max, Ian, and Domitian were safely indoors, away from the ears of the DJ and others setting up for the party, Max relayed what had happened at the Starland Food Universe parking lot. You have any idea who this homeless old man was? Domitian asked. Max shook his head. No, but he knew exactly where that arch was hidden. <laughs> Those crows are crafty beings from what our friend has told me, Domitian pondered. He frequently called Mr. E our friend. You can never be too sure about anything where they're concerned. But they aren't being crafty anymore, Ian said. They're little piles of gooey feathers at the moment. Possibly, Domitian replied. Too bad we have no idea where this man went. But Ian only smiled. Well, Dom, my favorite senior citizen, that's where you're mistaken. People Nettle have him on candid camera. Max's eyes went wide. You think so? Peepernet was a little something Ian had cooked up only recently. After the pocket, Max and Ian had been back to the Pyramid of the Arches dozens of times, exploring. They'd get there through the arch behind the dumpster at the Starland Food Universe parking lot, the same one the old man had just used. They'd go late at night when nobody was around at the supermarket. They'd tie a rope to the dumpster and go through the wall as if it were made of water. Ian needed Max's help to do this. Normal people weren't able to find the arch from this side of it. They would only see and feel a solid cement wall. But Max, a native Nuberian, wearing his Umphalus bracelet, could always find the arch eventually just by feeling around for it. He would push here and then there, and then suddenly his hand would go through, disappearing up to the elbow. Here we go. Found it, he'd whisper to Ian. Ian would hand him the rope and Max would feed it through. And then, together, they'd back through the wall, holding the rope very tightly as they did so. And holding on tight was important, for when they were through, inside the pyramid itself, they found they were hanging from the ceiling by the rope perhaps twenty feet from the ground. Then they'd lower themselves down and get to work. The pyramid was an odd place. Up and down were relative inside of it. Ian might be standing on a wall, while Max was standing on the ceiling. Gravity shifted to accommodate where you were at any given moment. The arches themselves were located everywhere within the pyramid at different odd angles, right side up, sideways, upside down, etc. The whole place had the brain-cracking feeling of an Escher print, or a collapsed continuum of some sort. On occasion, Max and Ian had even ventured to step through some of the other arches, but never for more than a few moments, and strictly into scenes which seemed to be deserted. One arch showed a waving field of sugarcane somewhere tropical, perhaps Hawaii. Most of the time, it was blissfully sunny. But then, they noticed that for months on end, it would rain in dangerous torrents. Another arch showed a contemporary park. There were people dressed in bell-bottom jeans and bright colors, and they wore huge afros. Now and then, Ian was able to pick up a local radio station from the other side, playing disco. One night, he'd ventured through and grabbed a newspaper from the trash. It was a June 4, 1977 edition. But some of the arches seemed completely useless. One was buried under the sea. Fish swam up to it like the wall of a great aquarium. They seemed to know the portal was there, 
and that they would die if they swam through into the waterless environment on the other side. Vaguely, Ian wondered what kept the ocean water itself at bay. Another arch showed a cross-section of geological strata, as though that arch had been buried for eons. All in all, however, nothing truly exciting seemed to happen in the arches, yet Max and Ian both felt they ought to keep an eye on the place, just to be sure. So Ian had created Peepernet. It was essentially a surveillance system that watched and listened to everything inside the Pyramid of the Arches. Ian had set up several little cameras in various vantage points. They recorded MPEGs around the clock, hundreds of little hard drives dutifully humming away, archiving everything they witnessed. The arches were like televisions into different times. You never knew what you would see next. Afterward, Ian's software picked out potential scenes of interest. Later, Ian would pour over this playlist, watching moments of history unfold firsthand. Yeah, Ian nodded to Max and Domitian. I have camera coverage of almost every arch now. We'll know what happened to the old man and where he went. But I should go back and grab a dump of the video, just to make sure. Ian did not need to physically enter the arch to retrieve the video. He discovered early that radio waves went through an arch just fine, thanks to those 1977 disco stations. So he'd outfitted PeeperNet with a Wi-Fi connection. All Ian had to do now was pull up next to the dumpster, fire up his laptop, and start downloading video. He had every bit from the last day inside of 15 minutes. But now he had to get moving. Sasha was expecting him, and he was already running late. Closing his laptop, he fired up the engine and began the long drive up the coast. Sasha Foix was distracted most of the time these days. Her high school was far away from Starland. Too far away from Ian especially, but also from Casey and Max. Her hometown, Gilmanton, was the garlic capital of the world, a farm village on the ocean an hour north of Starland. The wind here always smelled of garlic in the sea. Sasha skipped class much of her senior year, hanging with a girl named Taylor. They would sneak away through a path in the woods, down to the boardwalk by the sea, where the bikers and the bands and the cotton candy and the tattoo parlors were. Taylor was no Casey, but she was here in Gilmanton, and she was fun in her own way. Sasha hadn't even bothered to try to talk to her parents about the pocket. It was pointless. Her father, Diderot Foix, was a partner in a management consultant firm. And this, according to Ian, meant he grossly overcharged people for relatively simple software work. In essence, Diderot was a digital snake oil salesman. His company was the kind of a place that brimmed with snappy little models like we get companies unstuck, and reinventing the reinvention process. Such people didn't respond well to a tale like that of the pocket. Sasha's mother Jackie wasn't much better. They were people of substance, she repeated to Sasha again and again. They were the elite. Sasha was expected to behave in a manner appropriate to a person of substance. Most of Jackie's house was like a museum, filled with beautiful things which no one ever saw or enjoyed. They were simply there to remind Diderot and Jackie, and Sasha, of who they were. No, Jackie Foix could not be told about the pocket, either. She would not want to hear of such an experience. It had no place in the tight bubble she inhabited. But Sasha had caught some serious flack from both her parents over her slave tattoo, that was for sure. They thought she had gone to some freaky beachside ink shop behind their backs. My God! Why your hand? her father had screamed. Why not somewhere so obvious? You can't cover that up. So Sasha just said, yeah, that's exactly what she'd done. 
She'd wanted to get a tattoo, so she went out and got one. She took the hailstorm of yelling that had come with that admission. What else could she do? Why such an ugly tattoo, Sasha? Jackie had asked. The sunbolt, the mark of Nuberian slavery, was a tattoo of a small black sun with a ring of lightning bolts around it. It was not a butterfly or a fairy or even barbed wire. Sasha hadn't even had the common decency to rebel in a normal manner. Jackie fretted for months as doctor after doctor made the attempt to remove it with a laser, but each was perplexed. The normal treatments had no effect. The sunbolt stubbornly remained impervious. Yet the more Diderot and Jackie tried to remove the sunbolt, the more Sasha found that she actually liked having it. She noticed that her father spent nearly 80 hours a week at his job. He stuffed himself daily into a suit and a tie, a piece of clothing so oddly like a hangman's noose, and made plenty of money, but he was always working. He was always angry and stressed out. The point of work, Sasha thought, was supposedly to make money to live and do the things you liked and to be happy. But she'd noticed that her parents were never happy. They were slaves. Well-dressed slaves, but slaves nonetheless. Sasha's sunbolt reminded her that she, too, had once been a slave. And now, it served as a reminder to never become a slave again. And as for Ian, after the time of the pocket, he found that he actually wasn't that interested in returning to England after all. He wanted to stay in Starland. Max was here. Casey was here. But most importantly, Sasha was here. And on top of that, Max had just purchased a real, honest-to-goodness, bona fide mansion, a secluded country estate. There was plenty of room for him. And so, with his father's permission, at 13, Ian moved in with Max and Domitian. For, it seemed against all odds, Ian's father, Devin, actually believed everything his son told him about the pocket. It helped that Devin already had an open mind about things like aliens, ancient astronauts, and other extreme possibilities. And besides... Ian found that he could actually prove some of his tale. He could now read ancient Sumerian. Devon had been astonished, but to his credit not surprised, when he had put his son to the test. He gave Ian a copy of The Cuneiform Inscriptions of Western Asia by Henry Rawlinson, a piece of paper and a pen. Ian had translated a whole tablet in four minutes flat and hadn't used any reference materials at all. When Devon checked Ian's translation against Rawlinson's own and cross-referenced it against a classified list of Sumerian ideographs by R. Brunau, he'd found that Ian was spot on. Ian had even supplied a few corrections where these two expert authors had apparently made minor errors. At 15, Max and Casey had started dating. It seemed natural. They fit together. And after all, nobody else could possibly understand what had happened to them during the pocket. But by 16, they'd broken up. Ian and Sasha played counselor on either end, trying to figure out what had gone wrong. They tried to help to patch things up. We, we just argue all the time, Max said. I don't know, maybe it was a bad idea in the first place. Outside of the pocket, we're just different people. And Casey was just as confused as Max. We just, uh, I don't know, he's too brooding. It seemed like a good idea at first, but it, it just doesn't work. Neither one of them could really explain what had gone wrong. Ian and Sasha finally gave up. At first, the breakup of their friends spooked them. I mean, what if the same thing happened to them? What if their whole relationship was somehow based on the pocket? But it was clear in the following weeks that this wasn't the case at all. Sasha and Ian were just fine in the real world. 
and the distance between Max and Casey couldn't have been greater. The sleek town car rolled along the grassy woodlands and spacious lawns of Max's splendorous residence. The healthy green smell of freshly cut grass wafted on the breeze. The silver hood ornament sliced through the air like a surfer of the invisible aether. Casey sulked in the back. She didn't want to be here. She hated accepting Max's favor of a limo ride, but her car was in the shop, so this was the only way she could come to the party. Actually, that wasn't true. She told Max that her car was in the shop as an excuse, but he'd kept insisting she come anyway. It was important. Ian had some stuff to tell them, all four of them. Stuff about, yeah, you know, that. Yes, that. No, this wasn't a lame trick to get her to come and talk to him again. You have to be kidding. He would never, never use that in that manner. So, when Max's driver and town car had arrived at her house to pick her up, she reluctantly got in. Casey plucked at her form-fitting green army pants, her black cut-off t-shirt which showed her tan stomach and obligatory belly-button ring. Her long blonde hair, now straightened, was gathered into two ponytails at either side of her elfin face, and she wore a green army eight-penny cap that matched her pants. Casey hadn't been here for over a year, ever since she and Max had had their last fight. But Newburians were nothing to mess with. She'd learned that when she was twelve. If it was true that they were up to something again, she grudgingly had to admit that she wanted to be near Ian, Sasha, and even Max while it was going down. No one else could possibly comprehend what had happened to the four of them. Oh, she had tried to explain it to Sabine Cole, her mother, and that had been the worst. In the weeks following the time of the pocket, a 12-year-old Casey Cole had told the story to her mom. At first, Sabine had listened much as an amused parent would, marveling at the imagination of her daughter. Time stop! Aliens! Evil queen! But when Casey got to the part about Johnny Siren, Sabine had jumped into the air like she'd been attacked. How had Casey discovered his name? She had demanded to know. And how dare she say that name aloud in her house? Casey saw for the very first time just how deeply Johnny Siren had hurt her mother. Casey had accidentally tapped a raw pink area in her mom's psyche, one that apparently hadn't been disturbed in years. And for her part, Sabine was concerned. Something was going on with Casey, some kind of emotional imbalance, probably from not having a father. Casey's subconscious was trying to compensate. Sabine calmed down long enough to listen to the rest of it. But when Casey got to the part about Siren saving her, pulling her away from Jadith, sacrificing himself for her. Well, Sabine had gone absolutely berserk. She slapped Casey for lying. Casey ran up to her room. She hadn't been lying. It had all been true. She'd felt intensely betrayed by her mother. The school counselor that Casey was subsequently forced to talk with had quietly informed her that her story was classic wish fulfillment, an elaborate fantasy constructed in her head to compensate for the cold, hard fact that her father had abandoned her and her mother. She had reimagined Johnny Siren as a hero figure, larger than life, doing the right thing in the end. Her story wasn't really real, even though it seemed very real to her. In the end, she would have to learn to do away with this emotional crutch and face the truth. And that was the last time Casey had told anyone about what had happened. To top it all off, Sabine had given Casey the worst slap of her life when she announced that she wanted to be called by her real name, Casey Serranus.
And so now, Casey was in an impossible situation. She couldn't tell her mother the truth. Therefore, Casey had to lie. And one lie became nine, which is the way of lies. Over time, this cut her off emotionally from her mom. You can't have a relationship based on lies like that. But the trust was blown. Casey felt she could no longer confide in her own mother. You can tell me anything, her mom would say. Oh yeah, right. So, as the years went by, Casey bottled more and more things inside. Things that she should have talked about. Oh, nothing traumatic. Not one thing. Just things about boys, friends, life. But they added up. They festered in her subconscious. They even filled her mind from time to time with a sort of depression. Sometimes, so heavy, there would be thick darkness lurking, even in the brightest sunlight. Casey's attention was presently caught by the radio. Planet Furious had just released their first album in five years, Furioso Virtuoso. Casey snorted to herself. It had taken Johnny Jupiter and those boys that long to get over their bizarre encounter with those goldenrod blokes. Their hit single, Bad Man, had started zipping up the charts and file-sharing lists, and it played now on the car radio. Casey hummed along with the lyrics. He was a bad man, slipped across the water, slipped across the desert of doom. He was a good man, but only for a moment, only half a moment too soon. He was the dark moon shining on the water, laughing down on the ocean of gloom. He was the twister spinning in the cornfield, pushing up black roses in bloom. He was the blood sun, old soul in an old sky, redder than the ruby red room. He was a bad man slipped across the water, slipped across the desert of doom. She snorted a laugh to herself when the song was over. Johnny Jupiter and Sid Venus had been on VS1's music backstage only last week. Before this latest album, Venus had left the band to do a solo project ridiculously entitled Regade Moi. Jupiter was in and out of rehab, unable to shake what had happened to them on tour five years ago. Jupiter spent a good part of music backstage presenting, quote, proof of the strange occurrence on April 8th. It was a day, you know, when everyone had their bleeding cameras out because there was this eclipse, you know, Jupiter insisted, and those cameras caught more than just a celestial event, if you know what I mean. He went on to show a series of these pictures. The first showed a great crowd looking skyward, but in their midst were hundreds of other mysterious figures dressed in suits of polished shiny gold. In the background of the sky, and between the monolithic towers of glass and steel, were several glowing lights hovering menacingly. The sky-gazing New Yorkers were crisp and sharp in detail, but the bizarre golden figures each had a motion blur around their edges. Bad fake, a photographic expert commented in the next segment. Somebody slapped two pictures together taken with different shutter speeds. Horrible job! And there were other bits and pieces the pocket had left in its wake that Casey was aware of. One was an article from the local paper of the town the Serpents and Mermaids had taken over. She read the newspaper clipping. Bizarre happenings reported all over Caledonia Springs. April 9th, Caledonia Springs, California. CP staff. Yesterday afternoon saw one of the strangest days in the Midlands history. Reports came in around 4 p.m. to the sheriff's office of what can only be described as unexplained pranks coinciding with yesterday's solar eclipse. These reports, although quite numerous and therefore very hard to refute, are so strange that nobody has any idea what to make of them. Some have suggested poltergeists, 
others UFOs, and still others point to lost time elements of the story. Here's just a part of the ledger from yesterday's afternoon. There were several hundred reports of burglaries and ransackings. Stores, residences, and offices alike were torn apart. The mystery criminals left many messes in their wake, overturned furniture, broken windows, and discarded items thrown about the room. One man reported that he was walking to the bank, and the next he, quote, found himself covered in green paint. Furthermore, according to him, the paint was dry when it appeared on him. He has absolutely no explanation for how it came to be on his person. The park was found to be littered with literally heaps of garbage. Burn marks and giant ash piles indicate that several large bonfires, in violation of city ordinance, appear to have been lit. There have also been numerous reports of, quote, missing food. Residences report almost universally that dinners known to have been cooking in the oven were found to be missing after the eclipse. Refrigerators across the Midland were also discovered to be empty. The Regal Roast on Carnita's Way reports that its entire inventory of double deluxes simply vanished during the eclipse. Also, graffiti has popped up all over the town. Again, the scale of it defies explanation. Most popular among the art discovered has been a symbol of some kind that looks like a cartoon mermaid and a snake with a red circle drawn around it, like the so-called Anarchy A symbol. Casey had smiled when she'd read that. That poor town had been traumatized. But then her mood soured again. The town car was pulling into Max's driveway. Oh, hell, she thought. She could see the two happy balloons and the other want-to-burn-them decorations. Casey was in no mood for a party, much less one with Max. But Sasha was coming, she reminded herself. Ah, yes, that's right. In fact, maybe Sasha was already here. Domitian met Casey at the front door. Casey, so nice to see you again, he said with his warm, grandfatherly smile. Come in, come in. Are you taller? You look taller. Thanks, Domitian, Casey said. Nope, same size. Maybe you shrank. Domitian laughed. <laughs> yeah, at my age, a distinct possibility, you know. Is Sash here yet? Casey asked hopefully. Domitian saw the look in her eye and knew exactly what that was all about. Uh, no, Domitian replied. Ah, but she and Ian should be here any minute, though. Some of the other Starlin High kids are in back. You ought to know several of them. Casey brightened with relief. Oh, okay then. Here's some stuff my mom made for the party. Cookies, I think. Uh, I'll be out back. Domitian nodded and took the tray. Let me know if you need anything, Casey. I'm here. Anything at all, you know that. Our friend asked me to look out for you also, you know. Casey smiled warmly and nodded. Thanks, that's good to know. From his room upstairs, Max watched Casey arrive with a knot in his gut. He dreaded this meeting. Seeing her at school was hard enough ever since they'd broken up. But today would be different. She'd actually come to his house. At first, she refused the invitation. But there was more afoot here than just a party. Ian had a bunch of things to tell them. Even before the thing with the old man in the Food Universe parking lot, he'd been amped up about something. The plan was they'd hang with the other Starlin kids for a bit, and then they'd sneak off. The four of them had a lot to discuss. The party went on until around 11 at night. Several hundred kids from Starland High showed up, with a few crashers from other area schools. This last group showed up extra rowdy from one too many funnels. Max actually had to wrestle one of them to the ground before they'd go away. But thankfully, the cold clouds of the afternoon had gone off to trouble some other county by evening, 
and a warm sea breeze heated the yard. Max and Domitian lit a huge fire in the stone pit, and the smell of flame-seared hamburger and chicken filled the smoky, star-filled air. Max and Casey managed to avoid one another all evening. They learned how to do this dance at Starland Hire and were quite good at it now. Max would hang with Ian and Sasha for a bit and then wander off, and then Casey would do the same thing. Afterwards, the swimming pool was a sea of floating red plastic cups and food wrappers. Domitian had hired a cleaning crew to deal with the inevitable festival-style trash that would be left behind, and they presently descended on this epic mess, like ants cleaning the remains of a picnic. By 11.30, Max, Casey, Ian, and Sasha had retired to a conference room on the third floor of Max's magnificent house. Sasha and Ian plopped down on one side of the long boardroom table, their very chairs even seeming to be connected together. Casey sat on the other side, opposite them. Trapped, Max sat at the head of the table in neutral territory. <clears throat> well, uh, Max said, clearing his throat. Thanks for coming. All of you. He snuck a glance at Casey. I hope you had fun. But Ian and I, we've got a lot to share with you. So I heard, Sasha replied. But Ian wouldn't tell me a thing on the drive back. I didn't want to ruin the festive mood, love, Ian replied. Not to worry, it'll all be dark and bleary again in another moment or so. Sasha punched his shoulder. Max and Casey both smiled, but studiously avoided each other's gaze. All right, let's get to it then, Max said. But before we do, Ian and I had a related incident this afternoon you two should know about. And then he told Casey and Sasha about what had happened at the Food Universe parking lot. Ian took the floor when Max finished, plugging his laptop into the overhead projector. Okay, first, Ian said, I think I know now who our little friend in the parking lot was. Sasha drove on the way back, and I did a little work. Oh, you're gonna love this. A frozen video image of the crazed homeless man appeared on the projected screen. Now, keep watching. Ian zoomed in on his face. He tapped a few keys and the image sharpened visibly. We clean him up a bit? The image morphed. Ian was applying some facial compositing algorithms of the sort police use to digitally age people or add weight to them or see what they might look like after the passage of time. But Ian was doing the opposite. He was de-aging the man, rolling him back in time. Wrinkles and blemishes faded, weight was stripped off of him, and smashed teeth were straightened, his jowls tightened. And finally, we give him a healthy tan complexion, and there! Now you tell me, who are we looking at? Max, Sasha, and Casey all leaned forward with slack jaws. It was so obvious. They recognized the face instantly. Mr. E? Max breathed. Ian nodded triumphantly. You know, he said, marveling at his own cleverness, some days I love me. But Mr. E can't leave the aisle, Casey protested. No, he can't, Sasha agreed. So this can't be Mr. E. Ian smiled. Aha! My pretty girl has got it, Ian said, winking at Sasha. So then who is this guy? Max said, puzzled. Enki, Casey replied, her intuition jumping. We're looking at the real Enki.
You've been listening to Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. The print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>